Good morning, church family. It is good to be here with family today, isn't it? All right, grab a Bible, stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in page 942 in the Bibles around the room, Romans 5, 1 through 11. When I finish, I'm going to say this is the Word of the Lord, and your response is going to be thanks be to God, because this is the breathing Word of God, the living Word of God. Right, Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we, we, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood— much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us and making it possible to be reconciled with the Father. We didn't deserve it. We are sinners, yet you died for each one of us. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, Father. We've had a tough week, and we are ripe for hearing your word of hope and salvation. Be with Pastor Kyle as he leads us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Melanie. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Kyle, as Melanie said. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to be your pastor, and it really is good that we get to be here together as a family today. If you are a guest with us, welcome to Living Stones. This is a great place for you to be if you are maybe looking, you're searching, you're maybe looking for answers, you have a lot of questions or doubts even, or, or maybe you got dragged here by a friend or your mom or somebody like that, and you're just here because they're going to buy you lunch afterwards. Whatever the reason you're here, we're, we're honored that you're here. We know that it takes time out of your weekend, and we hope that you can encounter Jesus today. And we believe that the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus. And so that's why we have our Bibles open to Romans 5. So if you don't have one open right now, grab one around the room and open to Romans 5, which is on page 942. And just one one thing I'd like to do as we start is just take a moment of silence, a brief moment of silence, because God is about to speak. So let's do that together. God, help us to hear your word. So this chapter, Romans 5, is an awesome chapter. Uh, The great preacher and reformer Martin Luther in the 1500s said, In the whole of the Bible, there is hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. 
And so this, like Romans a little bit, if you've been here for a few weeks, it's been beating us down, hasn't it? It's been just like saying, you're all sinners. You're under God's wrath. Well, this is where it really starts to turn the corner and it starts to uplift our souls. And you know what? Sometimes God needs to break us down so he can pick us up. And that's what this chapter is all about. Now, what this chapter is, is is it highlights what is true for the Christian. What is true for the person who's been justified by faith in Christ alone? What is true for the man or woman, the boy or girl who puts their faith in Jesus? That's what this section is about. And what I want to draw your attention to, we're going to read this first line of chapter one or chapter five together. Verse one, let's read it together. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That was pretty good. That was like half the room there. All right, but good job. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's true about us, that in Jesus, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Now, Paul begins this section, Paul's the author, he begins this section with the word therefore, and as my wife says, pastors always have these catchy phrases, when you see the word therefore, you have to see what it's there for, all right? Yeah, 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 okay. But it's actually a good way to read the Bible. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to first talk about what is that there for. Paul says, we have peace with God. And he says that because he's formally had made an argument that we in our own selves do not have peace with God apart from Christ. It reminds me of my neighbor's chihuahua. My neighbor has a chihuahua named Princess. And this chihuahua... It just, the thing about chihuahuas, I don't think they're really dogs. They're just, they're like some other creature. They're just always shivering. You know what I mean? And they always look nervous. They're going from one place to another. They jump up and down. Like even when they're sleeping and supposed to be at peace, they're still shivering. And I've been really thinking about this princess for a while. And uh, I think it's actually a decent picture of our culture. We live in a over busy, unsettled culture. We suffer from a severe unsettledness of the soul. We live over busy, scattered, anxious lives, don't we? Do you feel it? I mean, the Bible says that the root cause for this is because we have a great void in our heart that we're trying to fill with things that he never meant us to fill it with. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into man's heart. And what that means is God has made our hearts to, be, to, to long for the eternal and to be only satisfied and at peace when we're right with the eternal one, God himself. But naturally, we do not have right relationship with God apart from Christ. We are born sinners. The word sin simply means the condition of our heart by which we say, I'm going to live life on my terms, not God's. I'm going to do life my way, not God's way. And we're born like this. Case in point, you don't have to teach children to sin. You don't have to teach them to bite or to steal a toy from another kid or to push somebody over. Like, I have a two-year-old. I know this. He loves to hit people with sticks, and he thinks it's really awesome. And then when you take the stick away from me, he throws a conniption fit all over the floor. It's just horrible. But nobody taught him that. That is in him. And as adults, it's in us too, isn't it? You don't have to teach us to lust, to covet, to lie, to slander, to gossip. 
You don't have to teach us to overlook the, the, the hurting people in our lives so that we can be bettered. You don't have to teach us to uh, be passive when we should be active. We just do these things. You don't have to teach us to rebel and say to God, well, I don't like what you have to say on this. I'm going to do things my way. That is just in us. We are born sinners. And therefore, we are in opposition to God. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And God is the author of life. So we are born in opposition to God. This is why Ephesians 2 says that we, by nature, are children of wrath. What that means is what we deserve to inherit as children is not love, it's wrath. That's a hard message. And for three chapters through the book of Romans, Paul was writing to this Roman church to prove to them this message. And he had to do it for three chapters because his audience was kind of dense. And perhaps we are too. You see, in the first chapter, he, he begins to say, look, look at humanity. They are a world that decides to suppress the truth of God. Just like when you have a barking dog next door, eventually after a few years, you just forget that that dog is barking. You, you have suppressed the noise of that. In many ways, we do that with God's voice. We've suppressed the truth of God to live life on our own terms. And, and Paul goes on to mention many diff- a list of sins in which people do this. And then in chapter 2, There's an audience who says, well, good thing Paul's not talking about us because we're religious people. And Paul looks at the religious people and says, you're just as bad. In fact, perhaps worse because you have the laws of God and you judge people by the laws of God, but you yourself in your heart don't follow them. Nobody can stand up to God's perfect law and say, I perfectly obey. And so Paul then in chapter three says, so who's the problem? Who's to blame? We all are. And he says in chapter 3, it's a very beautiful passage, very uplifting. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And what he's referencing is, is that even our good works are tainted in some way by selfishness and sin. And so therefore, they do not count as good Because God's standard is perfect purity. Nobody's good. And in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, There is the way of peace they have not known. So in and of ourselves, we are in opposition to God. We have rebelled against him. And by nature, we are enemies of God, children of wrath. We are not at peace. So then the natural question is, well, then how can we have peace? Is peace with our creator even possible? And at the end of chapter three, Paul begins to turn a corner. He says, yes, because God sent Jesus to justify sinners. Hallelujah. And that word justify, which you can see right there in verse one, it says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, the word justify is a legal term. It means to be legally declared righteous in the presence of God, right with God. It means to be legally declared just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd always obeyed. And how is that possible? Well, it's because Jesus came as a substitute for us. And and we fail to obey God's laws. Jesus came and obeyed God's laws on our behalf. We deserve wrath and death. But what did Jesus do on the cross? He absorbed our wrath and our death on the cross. 
And so now God can look at us and in faith we put on the cloak of Jesus and we're covered by his blood and God looks at those who are in faith and says, you're justified, you're righteous. He doesn't look at us and see our faults, he looks at us and sees his son, hallelujah. And so therefore, we can have peace with God. That's what Paul's trying to say. Those who are justified can have peace with God. This is why Isaiah 9, 6 calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. He's the one who gives peace to his kingdom. And so here's the big idea for this section. We have peace through the Prince of Peace and through the Prince of Peace only. We have peace through the Prince of Peace and through the Prince of Peace only. So uh, why is this such a big deal? Well, in Romans 1 or 5.1, it says here, we've been justified by this peace. But what you have to understand about this peace is it's a different understanding of peace than what we as Americans think of peace. Paul uh, is thinking probably of a deeper term. It's the word shalom. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and Paul himself was a Hebrew. And uh, the, the Hebrew understanding of peace or shalom was much more than simply absence of conflict. Uh, the, the Hebrew idea of shalom was everything as it ought to be. Perfect contentness, um, harmony in all things. <clears throat> and so when Paul is writing about this peace, no doubt he is thinking about shalom. And shalom is first seen in the Bible in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And well, that's the very first pages of the Bible. And what we see is that God created all things, and he created humans and put them in the Garden of Eden. And in that place, they had perfect shalom. So think about it. They had shalom with creation. Like all of creation was in perfect harmony. Imagine that. And then they had perfect relationship with each other. Like husband and wife, imagine that. Like no fighting, always content with each other, perfectly harmonized, no bickering, nagging, yelling, no abuse. I mean, none of that. It was perfect. And then they, the, the, the root of it, though, was that they had perfect shalom, perfect peace with God, their creator, vertical, spiritual shalom. It says that God would walk with them in the cool of the day. Can you imagine going on a nature walk with the creator of nature, arm in arm? And he's like, check this out. Oh, you think that's cool? And he like turns over the animals like, it's got a blue belly, you know. (laughs) We had perfect relationship with the creator. Perfect shalom. But in Genesis chapter 3, the devil disguised as a serpent comes in and he tempts Adam and Eve, and and his tempting voice is this, do not trust God, take life into your own hands. And they do. And they rebel against God. And at that moment, shalom was lost. Perfect harmony was lost. Peace was lost. They realized that they were naked and they felt shame. And so they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. They were scared of God. So when he showed up to walk with them in the cool of the day, they tried to hide from God. Not a very good thing. It's like when your kid tries to hide from you. And then they felt so much guilt over what they had done that they decided to blame shift it on each other. And God, at that moment, comes to them and he he tells them three things. He says, number one, uh, this whole world is gonna be cursed because of what you've done. It's gonna be cursed because of what you've done. 
relationships are going to be cursed. Creation and shalom with creation is going to be cursed. And what we see happening right after that is we see the first murder take place. Why does murder happen? Because of a loss of shalom, a loss of peace. Things are not as they should be. And then he says, so first he promises that. Second thing he promises is that from the seed or from the offspring of a woman, not a man, he is going to send somebody to crush the serpent's head to start reversing the work that the devil had brought into this world. And he was going to reverse this and start reestablishing peace, but he would be wounded in the process. And then the third thing that he promises to them, Adam and Eve at that time, was this, is he, he killed an animal and he covered them when they were naked. And it was, a, it was a foreshadow of what God would do, that God would cover our shame, he would cover our guilt, and he would cover our fear, and he would protect us. And so that is a foreshadow to what God has done in Jesus Christ. It was a picture. Because when Jesus comes onto the scene, how is he born? Of a woman, not a man. And what does he do? He lives perfectly, facing the devil face to face in temptation, and he defeats the devil's temptation. In fact, one of the places that we see him being tempted is in the garden before he dies. And he's tempted not to go to the cross. And instead of giving in like Adam and Eve gave in, what does he say to God? Not my will, but yours be done. Where Adam and Eve fail, where we all fail, Jesus succeeded. And then he went to the cross and he was killed on the cross as a substitute on our behalf. And then he went into the grave and then he resurrected, conquering and putting uh, and starting to reverse the works of the devil. And where, where did he resurrect? In what kind of place? In a garden. Why did Jesus resurrect in a garden? I think it's a message to us because God is reversing what we lost in the garden. He's giving us back the peace that we gave up. And so that's what this is, that's what Paul is thinking about. And this is a big, big deal. Paul's saying, now because of Jesus, we have vertical peace with God. Now, we, now Jesus himself says, now this, I'm, I've come to give you peace, but you will have tribulation in the world. Because Jesus has come to deal with the penalty of sin and the power of sin in our lives. One day he's going to return and he's going to deal with the presence of sin altogether. So in the meantime, though, we can have perfect peace and relationship with God. And this is great news because here's what it means. We don't have to walk around like Adam and Eve anymore. We don't have to walk around trying to cover up our shame with good works. We don't have to walk around hiding from God, thinking that he hates us. And we don't have to walk around blame shifting any longer because we know that we are beloved children of God. Hallelujah. We're his. We have this peace. Now, how does this peace come? Look at what it says here in verse one. It says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse five, it says, through the Holy Spirit. And then in verse eight, it says, but God shows his love for us. And and that word God is referencing God the Father. And so what we see here is for the first time in the book of Romans, aside from the introduction, the entire trinity of who God is is mentioned. Because it's the entire Trinity who is at work in setting us at right with God. He sets us at peace with God. So uh, God the Father, we, we, we are made at peace with God through Jesus Christ because of the love of the Father and by the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that. Through Jesus Christ. Um, 
Paul begins in verse 1, talking about through Jesus Christ, and he ends in verse 11, talking about through Jesus Christ. It's a bookend. And so basically what he's saying is the only way to have peace with God is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to have peace with God. Some people say, well, God is love. And I believe that because God is love, I mean, I'm not perfect, he's going to accept us all anyways because he is love. But the person who says that has a small view of what love really is. Because if God is love, how is it that he will not punish evil? Isn't it cruel to overlook sin and evil? But God, because he is love, he does punish evil. He just doesn't punish it on us if we're in Christ. He punishes it on Jesus. So it's only through Jesus. Some other people say, well, I know I'm at peace with God because I'm a pretty good person. I don't really need this Jesus thing. I try to do his will. I try to be a good person. I try to love my neighbor as myself. But this kind of thinking has a low view of God and a high view of self. I mean, if, if God is like that, he must be low enough that you can attain him. And he must be small enough that he's impressed by you. And we know that the God of the universe is not impressed by you or me or anybody. So how is it then that God can love and forgive a sinful, evil humanity and still maintain his justice at the same time? Well, it's, he has to send a substitute. In Jesus Christ, the sinfulness of his people's sin was placed on Jesus and he bore God's holy and just and perfect wrath. And it's through that that we can be forgiven. It is only through Jesus. And this needs to be heard by many people in the church because many people in the church, they go through a lot of Christian rituals, but they don't have a relationship with Christ. Many of us might have what Michael Horton calls a Christless Christianity. But it's really only through Christ, through this connection and relationship with Christ, that we can have true and lasting peace with God. And an objection might be in our culture, we might say, well, that's not fair. What kind of a God is a God who says you can only get to me one way? But think about this. Isn't that how relationships work? Single people, if you're entering into the dating scene, you're not just letting any Yahoo come up and date you however they want to approach you. You're not just going to open up your heart to anybody however they want. There's a way that they have to approach you, right? In the same way, God, being a relational being and being in relationship with us, he says, there's a way in which you need to approach me, and it's through my son. He is the way. It's only through him. He's the only way I've provided. And we shouldn't get mad at God for, not, for saying no to other ways. We should be thanking God for providing a way. <laughs> Thank you, God, that you've given us a way. So this has come through Jesus Christ. There is no peace apart from Jesus. Many people in our culture seek peace through you know, ridding themselves of their own desires or seeking hobbies, but your soul continues to be restless because you're not seeking Jesus Christ. So seek him and find that peace. And it comes because of the love of the Father. If you look here at verse five, it says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and then in verse 8, it says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this, this peace comes and is originated not in us, but in God's love, in his love for you. Now, 
Love is an interesting thing. And if you were to give somebody a gift of love, the measure of that gift would be based on a few things. It'd be based on the willingness of the giver, the cost of the gift, and the worthiness or unworthiness of the recipient. So think about it like this. My son, if I said, Josiah, um, your sister's birthday is coming up and she's been really, really nice to you. And so you need to get her a gift. And he says, I don't want to get her a gift. I'm like, well, you need to do it. And so he goes in and he picks a toy from his toy box that he doesn't like, that he wants to get rid of anyways. And he wraps it and he gives it to her as a gift. Is that really a great gift of love? No, because a few things. It wasn't based on his willingness. And two, I tried to bribe him into doing it because she'd been nice to him. And three, it cost him nothing. Cost him nothing. Now, if he came to me and said, Dad, my sister's being so mean, I can't stand her, but I really love her and I want to give her a gift. She doesn't deserve it, but I love her and I want to give her a gift. I say, okay, that's pretty cool, son. And he comes to me on his own willingness. And I say, what do you want to do? He says, I'm going to empty all the money I have in my piggy bank, which is probably like $6. I'm going to empty all that and I'm going to give it, uh, I'm going to buy something for her at great cost to myself. That would be a great gift of love. She doesn't deserve it. He came on his own willingness and he spent everything he had. See, that is what Jesus has done for us. We have not deserved this love. Look at what it says. For while we were still, in verse six, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He doesn't wait for us and say, you gotta get your act together, then I'll start loving you. He says, while you are still weak. Okay, if you look down a little bit further in verse eight, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then again in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. God did not wait around for us to get our act together. He died for us while we were still sinners, enemies, weak, helpless, unable to work our way to him. Useless in matters of spirituality. And he did it of his own accord because of the love of God. There's nobody, no angels in heaven being like, hey, you know, God, those are your creation. You should probably go love them. Like he did this of his own accord. In fact, it was his plan since before the foundations of the world to love his people, even though he knew they would rebel against him. And it came at great cost, didn't it? The only way that God could and the way that he chose to forgive us was through the blood of his precious son, his greatest treasure, the lamb of God. God does not give us leftovers. He gave us everything he had. He gave us his very own son. Jesus willingly gave up his life. He gave it all. It came at great cost. It was because of his love, the love of the father. And how is this love applied? It's applied through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse five. Look at verse five. It says, um, it says the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we have peace with God when this Holy Spirit, when God the Holy Spirit opens up your heart and pours in God's love. Okay, this is a, this is a very intimate uh, form of language. It's not saying like this superficial love, like God's like, yeah, I like you, but don't talk to me. Like God says, I'm gonna pour the love of my son and my love into your heart through my Holy Spirit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go all the way into your heart. This is why Christianity is a lot more about inward heart change and not outward works. 
You can come to church and do anything, all the Christian stuff without being a Christian. You have to have a changed heart. The Holy Spirit has to open up your heart. You have to be born again. He has to pour in the love of God into your heart. And when he does so, the love of God becomes realized. Now, this makes me always think of those videos that you can see on YouTube of of children who are born deaf, and then they get a cochlear implant, and then they can start to hear. I, like, cry. I might cry right now. I I cry every single time I think about it because the, the, the parents are there with their child, and the first thing they always say to their kid in every single video is, hey, my boy, I love you. I love you. Now, those parents have told them that that child, I love you hundreds, thousands of times. But for the first time, the child can actually receive it and hear it. That's what it means. Look, this love of God was demonstrated 2,000 years ago, long before you were born. I know we have some old people in here, but not that old. (laughs) Long before you were born, the love of God was shown on the cross. Before the foundations of the world, God had this plan to love his people. But it's only upon the Holy Spirit opening up our ears, our minds, our hearts that we realize it. It comes through him. He he makes us able to receive and to realize this wonderful love. And it's a beautiful thing. And if you're not a Christian, that's why sometimes as Christians we cry. And we raise our hands in worship because we understand that it's by, none of this is by what we do. Look at none of this in this chapter is by what we do. We don't gain peace, peace by us. It's all by God, the Trinity. And it's through the Holy Spirit and it's through the Prince of Peace. Our peace is through the Prince of Peace. So what does it mean? Well, there's six we statements in this section. And, and the reason I want to draw your attention to that is because, um, Throughout the book, Paul has been using different uh, types of language. In in chapter 1, he was using I language. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to those who are being saved. Uh, uh, At the end of chapter 1, Paul starts saying they language. He's referring to humanity. In chapter 2, he starts using you language. In chapter 3, he says, we all language. And here, in chapter 5, he says, we. He goes from all to we. We, and he says we six times in these two paragraphs. Six statements of what we have because of this peace with God. And this is how we're going to close. This is what we get through peace with God. First of all, number one, you can write these down if you want. Simply this, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. I want to draw attention to the fact that he says we have peace with God, not God has made a way for us to feel at times peace with God. He says, we have it. It's fact. It's not feeling. So much of our culture is based on feeling. The highest value of our culture says, whatever I feel must be true. But your feelings can lie to you. And many people as Christians, you're plagued. You think that God is not at peace with you. You think that he's still at war with you. But the fact of the matter is, if you're in Christ, you have peace with God. It's fact. It's historical fact. It has nothing to do with you or your feelings. It has everything to do with what he has done. It is fact. If you have a bad dream and you think we're still at war with Nazi Germany and you wake up and you're like, we're at war. Everybody would be like, no, fact, the war is over. 
Well, fact, because of the blood of Christ, the war is over with God. If you're in Christ, the war is over. Now, fact, if you're not in Christ, the war is on. But you can, you can have peace if you come into Christ, if you just trust in him. There's no other way. Nobody else has died for your sins. Nobody else will, you know, take care of your imperfections. And God deeply loves you. Okay, so that's the first thing. We have peace with God. The second thing is this. We have constant access to God because of this peace. We have constant access. Okay, look at verse two. It says, through him, that's through Jesus, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Okay, the language here is a language of a throne room. Now in ancient times, when there was a king, nobody gets to just waltz into the throne room. You had to have certain credentials. And so because of Jesus, though, we have access into the throne room of God because we're hidden in Christ and Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So what this means is for any Christian, you can go to God anytime you want. You don't have to go to a priest or you don't have to pray to a saint. You can go straight to God through Jesus Christ. We get to go to God. We have constant access. And he says, this access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Spiritually speaking, you are never removed from that no matter how far you go or no matter how bad you mess up. We can go to God right after we sin. We can go to God right in the midst of sin because it's not based on us. It's based on him. It is, we are in his presence. We have constant access to the presence of God. Now, this was huge if you were a a, a Jew, because in the Old Testament, you could only have access into the presence of God once a year, and only one man could do it. And it was on the Day of the Atonement, and only the high priest could go into the presence of God. But Jesus, as the greater high priest, brings us all with us, all with him, into the presence of God. And we get to be there all the time. And so, saint, Christian, brother, sister, When you feel like you need to pray, but you feel like God doesn't want to listen, that's a lie from the devil. You can go straight to his presence. You can go right to him. Okay? The third thing that we have because of this piece is this. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God. Okay, now this is seen here in the the end of verse 2. It says, in this creation which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God is this is that God is faithful to fulfill his promises with his presence. Throughout the entire Bible, starting from that first passage I mentioned at the beginning, God is making promises. And how does he fulfill those promises? Through his presence. And the hope of the glory of God is this, is that one day Jesus will return and he will reconcile all things to himself. And he will rid this world of all evil and all that is broken. That is the hope of the glory of God. And how is he going to do it? Through his presence. He's going to make all things as they ought to be. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. There will no longer be any more mass shootings. I was talking with a friend the other night. He said, I'm afraid to say it, but this is just the new normal. Well, there will be a, a better new normal when Jesus returns. A better new normal is coming. A new normal that doesn't have any evil or strife or sin or slander or hatred or murder. And that is the hope that we look forward to. And the reason we can look forward to that hope and we can rejoice in that hope because God has already demonstrated his faithfulness in the past. 
So our future hope is based on the already work that God has done in the past. Okay, that's the third thing. The fourth thing that we get with this peace of God is we get to rejoice in our sufferings. Now that might sound a little weird to you. Look at verse four, or actually verse three. It says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So we get to rejoice in our sufferings. When you have peace with God, you get to rejoice in your sufferings. You don't just have to endure them, you get to rejoice in them. And you know why? Because you're confident that God loves you. You're confident that the wrath of God has already been appeased against you. And, And you're confident that God in your suffering is not there to destroy you, he's there to build you up. And that's what suffering becomes. When you have peace with God and you know God loves you, and you face a hard time, a trial in your life, you understand this isn't God exercising his wrath against me. This is God shaping me, building me up. That's why it says um, suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. He's shaping us and, and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because we have confidence that God is still at work even in the hard times of our lives. We can have joy. Now, I don't know if there's a greater witness to a world who doesn't know God than Christians who have joy in the midst of suffering. (laughs) And so this is one of the beautiful things that we get to display to a broken world. We get to display light in the midst of darkness. So that uh, fifth thing that we get, if you go down to verse 10, in verse 10, it says that, uh, it says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled Shall we be saved by his life? Shall be saved by his life. Okay, and if you look uh, up, it says that we shall be, into verse nine, it says that we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. So in Jesus Christ, through this peace, we also get to look forward to the fact that we will be saved from the wrath of God. A day of reckoning is coming. We all ask. How could God allow this evil? When is he going to act? A day in the future is coming at the end of history when he will act. And he will come and he will reckon all accounts. And that's terrifying for us who know that we're not perfect and we do have sin in our hearts. But the good news is that because of Jesus, we are hidden behind him and he is the rock and we will not face God's future wrath. Amen? Like, that's why we sing that song, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. We are hidden in the rock of God. And then as the wrath of God comes, we are preserved. So we are saved from the future wrath of God. We have nothing to fear with death as Christians. <clears throat> My dad always says, I'm not, I don't fear dying, I fear getting dead. Okay? I, okay. The process of getting dead is a scary process but we don't have to fear what's on the other side because in Christ, we are protected from the wrath and judgment of God. And then the last thing, and it's a beautiful thing, is in verse 11. The last we statement is this, is we rejoice in God. We rejoice in God. 
Now, Paul is doing this in contrast to the religious people in chapter two who rejoice in their own standing with God or what they thought their own standing with was God. See, the moralizers and the Judaizers and the religious people, they thought that they had the monopoly on God. They thought that, they, that the only way to know God is if you acted like them, if you acted like them. And Paul comes on the scene and says, no, the only way to know God is if you believe in Jesus. Then you can know God. And as you look through this text and as you read it and you contemplate the fact that wrath is coming, but God has, in his love has sent his son and in his Holy Spirit has opened up your heart, all the credit goes to God, not to us. And so we rejoice in God. We rejoice in God. Um, on this statement, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, the man is, who is a true Christian is a man who has had a glimpse of hell and knows that he's not going there for one purpose and one purpose only because of Jesus. He is the only reason we're not going there. And so when you understand that he's the only reason you're not facing wrath, he's the only reason that you have peace with God, he's the only one who is gonna come and restore this broken world back to peace, he's the prince of peace, then and only then will you rejoice in God. And so I say to you Christians who do this as a ritual and you just come, but you don't have much joy. Do you realize how much God has done for you? And I say this to you who are boasting in your own goodness. You need to realize that your flaws will never earn your way to God, but God has done something much better for you. And when you receive that, you will boast in him. And that's the kind of church that we want to be, right? We want to be a church that's known for rejoicing in God and God alone. So let's pray and ask that God would do these things in our heart. God, thank you. We pray that you would um, do these things in our heart. That you would grant us the ability to worship you and to rejoice in you. To rejoice even in the midst of suffering because we have your love. And God, I just pray for the people in this room who feel not at peace. For those who are Christians, I, I pray, God, that you would just remind them that sometimes our feelings lie to us and that you would help us to look to the historical fact that because of Christ, we are at peace with you. And I pray that for those who aren't Christians in this room and they're feeling a lot of tension in their souls, I pray that you would pour that feeling on even, that they might realize that the only way they can have peace is through Jesus Christ. And I pray that together we would find peace in Jesus and we would rejoice greatly in your name. Help this, God, in your name we pray.